Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And Happy New Year. We have survived thus far. We have made it into 2021. So kudos to you if you're still listening. Thank you for continuing to rock with us. We've got an exciting year ahead. When I say a year ahead, I'm actually saying that we've already scheduled episodes out until January of next year. So thanks for continuing to support. Let's get with it. When it comes to the month of January, I'm often thinking about returning to school. Thinking about the spring semester, I know students all across the country are returning to their universities and their colleges. It may look a little bit different this year, knowing that COVID is still among us, but people are returning to their classroom. And in many cases, students are only able to attend those classrooms through the support of financial aid. FAFSA, for example, provides over 13 million students with nearly $150 billion for aid. And that's billions with a B. I'm one of those students. It would be nearly impossible for some students to receive that higher education without access to financial aid. But even in this space, we still find certain groups are left out, certain groups are forgotten, and inequities continue to exist. And so today we're going to hear directly from Dr. Michael Couch II, a good brother of Kappa Alpha Psi Returning Incorporated, yo to the noops, who's going to share some of his experience when it comes to being the chief financial officer for Martin University in Indianapolis, Indiana, realizing that there is a shortage, if you will, quote unquote, of black men in these spaces. It's good to hear from someone who's upholding that equity lens when it comes to the work and understanding that there's certain tough questions that we need to ask to ensure that people are having a fair opportunity to receive funds, to engage in colleges and universities, and to graduate. This is part one of a higher education series where we're gonna be exploring some of the inequities that we find in this particular sector. So I'm excited for today's conversation, and we're also gonna carry it over into next month as well. And so to get things started, I would love to introduce you all to our esteemed guest speaker for today, and that would be Dr. Michael Couch II. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. As uh, James said, my name is Michael Couch II, so he's JB3, and so my wife calls me MC2. Um, And so I'm just more so happy to be here today um, and ready for this conversation, because I think we have some good dialogue and, you know, higher education and especially now in the context of a pandemic is an extremely hot topic. And so, um, you know, having the opportunity to speak about it is one that I don't take lightly, but I'm excited to do. Now tell us a little bit about your educational background because I did lead with Dr. Michael Couch the second. Yeah, so I recently completed my doctorate um, in 2019 um, at Fair State University with the emphasis in community college leadership. And so my undergraduate, um, I've been in education for the entire um, three degrees I've been in. I've been, I was in my mind, you know, as a high schooler, I think we all have those hoop dreams or football dreams. And slowly but surely, once those come to an end, you think of the next best thing, right? I want to be a coach or I want to be a gym teacher. And so um, went to undergrad, um, started working on education, looking at gym and a couple other subjects and then um, I actually got a job working in student life 
working at a, the student center at Grand Valley State University. You know, my supervisor there, who's still a good friend of mine today, he was like, well, you know, like, you could get paid for doing this. Like, you can get paid decent money for working out of college. And it was like, to set up events and host parties and eat popcorn, like, I mean, it's not like a pretty good gig. Like, I, I never have to leave college. So um, that conversation, he was like, hey, you know, you should really look into getting your master's degree. There's a ton of higher education and student affairs programs out there. And so that kind of led me to Western Michigan University and to the higher education student affairs program there. And um, just starting to get those skills to look at what higher education looks at, look like in a different context. And then um, after that, start working a little bit in higher ed and was like, okay, um, I knew the trajectory I wanted to be on. I was looking at that C-suite, looking at the, the CEO, um, chancellor and president jobs. And so um, one of my good friends, my mentor, who was actually the president that, um, at my current institution, um, we were both just kind of talking one day and you know, we were talking about being excluded, right? And so we as African-American males, um, we already have a couple things against us. So we don't want education to be a barrier. And so that kind of led me into my doctor and said, you know, if I'm gonna be, if I'm gonna apply for a job, I'm not, if I'm not qualified, it's not gonna be because I don't have the education. And so that led me into that. And so now um, I'm currently working at Martin University. So that's um, Indiana's predominantly black institution. And so I serve as the director of financial aid and slash chief financial officer. So dealing with all things student related to state funding, federal funding, scholarships, um, grants, anything that you can think of that's money related, it comes across my email or desk besides paying the bills. Mm. Talk about students of color being excluded, you know, Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you've seen with college enrollment. And you've been through a few different institutions now. How did we get here? Well, I think, I think and I believe we got here because, you know, we, we, had, we had a system that was very, it goes back to the early years of education. Um, when the Harvards were founded, um, and that was for predominantly for those that were of stature of a certain class, right? So there, that separation already began from the beginning with very elitist thought process, like only those that were elite caliber could go to college. Then as we kind of walk down the timeline of history, we start to see um, people say, wait, 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 nah, that's not really fair. So then you start to see the, the historical context of land grant institutions such as Michigan State, um, Purdue, a lot of Big Ten schools to where the government says, you know, we will give you money um, to function and educate people, but in an agricultural or mechanical type sense, right? So if you notice like Michigan State, um, th there's that historical background of being almost like a trade school, right? So then we started to create separation because then you have the U of M's of the world that kind of following that Harvard, the very prestigious and elitist. And then you have the Michigan States that were considered for the common, the common folk. Family could, you know, work hard, work in a factory, save their money and send their kids to college to change the trajectory of the career. 
African-Americans were left out of that conversation for the longest time to the point where we shift and we said, well, you know what, we'll start our own institutions. And that's where you start to see the founding of historically black colleges, right? Focusing specifically on educating African-Americans. And so then, you know, then, so now you have three silos already within an educational context. So now, you know, when we look at diversity and we look at equity, when we look at how do we get here, we started already in silos. And so then it became a big deal when we recruit students, well, what's the incentive for you coming here? So for me, coming to go looking at an HBCU versus a PBI, financially for my family, who's gonna give me the most money to come there? What's gonna be the most cost efficient for me and what's gonna create the least amount of debt for me? Right. So already in a sense, now you as a family are sitting there having to make a decision of do I look at the community college? Do I look at the four year institution or do I look at an HBCU because I want to have that experience? I want to be around people that I feel look like me, have same like mindedness as me. And so do I pay for that? And so in my day to day, that's the conversation. Right. I, I have conversations with families often what are you willing to pay for you know are you know going to your local community college and spending ten thousand or going to your four-year institution and spending 30. well what's the difference they always ask and the difference is you're paying for room and board you're paying for an experience not to say that that's a bad experience i had that experience it shaped me and molded me helped me to get to where i am today but now when we look at financial literacy and things of that nature we go back to the beginning and say, how do we create silos? And so then you start to see the Harvard charge more. So then what, what does that do? That causes your Michigan states to charge more. So then now we still are creating the silos and we're competing for the same pool of students. And then now it comes to how do we make this enticing for you to come here? And I imagine you can look at this in a few different ways because you see the same things in like the hospital institution or healthcare institutions. You have your expensive hospitals and you have what used to be like your black hospital, like the place where all the black mothers went. And in many cases, I know at least in Michigan, I think they were Kirkwood and Dunbar. They don't even exist anymore because they never received the funding that they needed. The clients that would actually go couldn't afford the services. I mean, it, it creates like this perpetual cycle of inequity. Mm -hmm. So I know you mentioned that you, you play a role kind of in facilitating discussions with parents, with potential students. What other role do you play in the solution of like this historical challenge that has now created this contemporary issue? One of, one of the biggest roles I feel that I play is having a, having a level of integrity and, in the work that we do and having honest conversations with um, students about where they actually are. Um, you know, knowing that student loan debt is a real thing, right? Man. Like I, I, I'm paying my student loans and trying to finagle and, you know, doing this and doing that. And knowing what I know now, that's the approach that I take when I'm talking with my students. Um, when I'm talking with my families about, let's make the right fiscal decision. You know, in if it makes sense and, you know, I want you to have the experience, but now let's talk about what it boils down to. 
because I've had conversation with families and, you know, and just more recently talking with a family, drove all the way down, um, down south to drop their kid off at an institution, um, got the bill and they're like, well, what didn't we do? We didn't get enough financial aid. I'm gonna take out a second mortgage on a house. Whew. So my conversation is, so you're taking out a second mortgage now, and this is the first year, what are we gonna do year three and year four? Mm-hmm. You know, like, let's, let's, let's talk through that because now, you know, in the big picture, anything with money, right? If I'm thinking about money, if I'm thinking about my refund check or if I'm thinking about a bill, I'm not really 100% focused on class because that's looming over me. So now I'm in class trying to focus on this bill or whatever situation I'm in, and then I don't do well as I could do in class or I don't do well at all. And then by financial aid terms, that puts you in a slippery slope because there's requirements to keep your financial aid. So then we get into that cycle of not understanding the system. And one of the biggest things I always tell students and families is, my experience is my experience. So let me give you the cheat codes and the things that I've learned from my experience to save you heartache, conversation, and any unnecessary things in the future. If I, if you can learn from my experience and say, man, I wish I would have done that differently. And I believe all of us probably have an experience like that. Like, man, I should never took, I should never, they offered me that loan. I should never taken it, but I, I definitely needed it to pay my rent, which I completely understand paying your rent. But one of the analogies I talk with one of my students with is, I can remember being an undergrad, getting a refund check, paying my rent, and I remember vividly, there was a Ralph Lauren shirt. Like, I had to have this shirt. And the shirt probably was like $90, $100, right? I got that shirt my sophomore year. By my senior year, I couldn't wear it anymore. And now I'm paying interest on that 20 years now that I'm out of undergrad. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hmm, like, knowing what I know now, should I have taken that money? Should I have just taken enough to pay my rent and lived? You know, like, so having that conversation with families about my experiences and, and all of us probably have, you know, all of us probably have that experience that we can share with a student. And I think that's how we begin to assist and break up some of the hierarchy in higher education. We have to share our experiences and we can't just share the good things. You know, we have to share the bad things. So our current students don't go through those things or don't make the mistakes that we made because in the situation that we're in, right? Like we're, if we would have known what we know now, some people would have said, you know what? Maybe the two year option would be the better fit for me. And I could have saved twenty, thirty thousand dollars because the U of M's, the Purdue's, the IU's, they're gonna look at your credits and transfer those credits in and you could have saved money. But you know, in a, as a system and as a society, we paint it as colleges you're coming out, you're, you're coming out of the cocoon, you're leaving the nest, you're going to live on your own, and you're gonna become this adult in this four year time, and you're gonna figure out life, you're gonna get a degree and get a job and figure out life in four years with no guidance. And hopefully you ask questions along the way so you can get some wisdom or get someone to help you along the way. But if you don't, you know, we have placed that expectation that 
you go to college, you're supposed to come out a better person. You're supposed to know exactly what you want to do and have a plan and work a job and be a productive member of society. I'm just sitting here reflecting on Welcome Week 2006 with an 18-year-old brain and a nice fat refund check with terrible <laughs> decisions made. Terrible decisions. You're not the only one, my brother. I, 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 can I, I, I can remember the good times that I had with those refund checks <laughs> and, I, and can, can re vividly remember some great times. But now when I look at my student loan payment, I'm like, oh, Lord, what was I thinking? It wasn't that great of a time. <laughs> it ain't it ain't Disney World, but you know, I hear you. I hear you. We often talk about like the the achievement gap when it comes to higher education. I mean, it starts as early as third grade. But you bring up an interesting point around financial literacy. You know, how often do you see that as a challenge when it comes to the discussions that you have with families and parents? Um, that's usually that usually rates pretty high and and I always take the time I start my presentations and I'm always intentional about um, asking students the very first question of who's all going to college right that's pretty simple everybody raises their hands where they're going to college you know everybody starts yelling out great crowd participation the third question is how much does it cost to go there and that's where crickets and parents start to gasp because, you know, everybody, you know, everybody has the thought and the idea, but how many of you really know what the cost is to go to that college? Um, if you're going out of state, you know, have you factored in, you got to get there? Is it a car ride or is it a plane trip? You know, how are you going to get home for holiday break? How are you going to get home if there's an emergency? If you're six hours away, eight hours away, Who's going to pay for that flight? You know, you got to come home for winter break. So that's a flight. You got to come home or go somewhere for spring break unless you work something out to stay on campus, which most institutions are flexible and great and do a great job at that. If you need to stay on campus, you can, but eventually you want to get home. As an 18 year old on campus, you get a little homesick. And oftentimes when I'm talking with parents, they're kind of like, I never thought about that. Like, I just, I, I was just excited. They wanted to go to X school and we were going to figure it out. And I'm like, well, my job is to help you figure it out now. So when you sit down in the summer before making that decision, you have a full picture of what you're getting into. And I think a lot of us can kind of speak to that. Um, and I know I can't with my family. I, they just were excited about college and I was going. I don't think financially we knew exactly what we were getting into and what we were on the hook for. We knew about books. We knew we had to buy books, but you know, having a meal plan versus not having a meal plan, living in, you know, a campus dorm with four roommates versus two roommates, having your own bathroom versus a community bathroom. Like none of those things we talk about, but your bill reflects all of those things. So I'm always conscious to kind of start my presentations by asking those questions. And that usually is where, where the wheels start to get turning. And I always, I always make sure to say, hey, you know, if you haven't looked before, before the next time I see you or before the next time um, you get ready to fill out your FAFSA or do something financial aid related, 
my challenge to you is to go to your schools that you're interested in and look at what the cost is. Look and see what they're charging you per year. And then me and you can set up some time after that because I can tell you what you will qualify for federally. What I can't tell you is what the scholarships, um, the rich uncle or grandma put some money away in the mattress. I can't tell you that part, but I can at least give you a picture financially or federally what you potentially could be eligible for. And this number that I circle is what you will be responsible for to give you an idea. And oftentimes people kind of look at me as, well, nobody told me that. And I said, exactly. It's not, the information is there but nobody's telling us to go look for it. We're looking for what Welcome Week looks like. Um, the parents are going to the bookstore to buy the, the mom of X school or dad of X school, um, but nobody is really having that conversation about what it looks like and what the financial responsibility is. And it's tough because, you know, I, I see a lot of students in this situation and we probably we probably know a few we probably both know a few students that have gone somewhere for a semester or for a year and then all of a sudden i can't really afford to go here no more now i got to come back home and shift and so i take i take the approach of that financial literacy piece very very big and personal because i i remember my experience and i always want to make sure i share like this is my experience yes i had the i had the four year experience i had a roommate i'm paying for that now I understand that, but I want you to understand going into it versus me. My family was just kind of like, you got in, they gave you some money. Cool. Not looking at what the big picture is from year one to year two and then year two to graduation. You got me rethinking this doctoral degree, but I'm too far in now. <laughs> Can't go back. Your doctoral degree will pay dividends. And if it doesn't pay, it will pay dividends financially. Street credit wise, it's going to pay off right away. Because you'll be somewhere and somebody will say, Dr. Bell, what do you think? And you'll be like, you'll kind of pause and like, y'all talking, are they talking to me? And you'll pause and say, oh, yeah. And so, you know, it, it'll, it'll pay your dividends. Trust me, it'll pay dividends um, 10 times over, especially, you know, when we look at data. Um, and I think the last data that I looked at was probably 13% of people in the United States have doctorates. 6% is African-American. Realistically, out of that six, probably 2% are African-American males. And that's being generous. Because, mm. you know, African-American females by far, you know, are exceeding, they're crushing it right now in education. And, and not, it's not to say that African-American males are not, it's just what the data is showing, that African-American females are just, they're just obtaining degrees at a much faster rate. And so when you talk about the achievement gap, I often tell people, you know, is it achievement gap or is it an opportunity gap? Yeah. We have the opportunity to change the narrative if we want to. It's just a fact of, are we going to do the work to change the narrative? And so I often tell people, like, it's an opportunity to get better. It's an opportunity to take a look at what the data is showing us and say, this is where we're not equitable, or this is where we're not recruiting, or this is the area where we're not placing emphasis. What opportunities do we have to change that? 
and I think it takes a lead. It takes us um, being in our positions, having those conversations to say, you know, I, I always hear, and you always hear in higher education, it's a, it's a term, it's a killer phrase. Um, we've always done it this way. Ugh. Yeah, it's, you know, it, 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 it's, it's just a killer phrase. We've always done it that way, and one of my rebuttals to that is just because we've always done it that way does that mean we can't do it better and you know as we look at the gatekeepers in higher education we've always done it this way as a silencer to somebody that's new and upcoming or emergency because that's the way that you you stifle that flame you stifle their thoughts you stifle their innovation because now you're like we've always done it that way we know that this works and it's proven, but the one thing that I can honestly say um, that COVID has shown us is we've always done it that way is being exposed. Yeah. Because what we're doing or what we've done in the past that's worked hasn't worked and it's caused us to, to pivot. It's caused us to pivot and make decisions at a much faster rate. It's causing students financially to think, and I don't, I might take a gap year, you know, I might, I might just kind of wait and, you know, a student, I had a student tell me, you know, he wanted to find himself, you know, in, 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 a, in a gap year. And I said, okay, you know, that's completely fine. Um, but now we have students, you know, that's the thing now, right? I, I need to take a gap year to figure out what it is I really want to do. And um, I think one of the best um, visuals of that, it was on the show Blackish, where the son says, I, 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 I got here and they dropped him off to college and he got there and he said, I have no clue what I want to do. And he decides to take a gap year to figure it out. And that's what, that's what we have right now with students. And fiscally for me, a gap year, is a smart choice because I would rather you take a year to figure it out than for you to go to college for a year and have, you know, five, $10,000 in debt. That's accruing interest while you're trying to figure it out. And I'm glad that you touched on, on the solutions, right? And even talking about opportunities in COVID, I mean, we've had to shift in many ways. I mean, professionally, you know, Zoom and Teams are like all day now and is lended itself to say we can function in this space and still get things done. There's still efficiencies there. My next question is really about navigating the systems because, you know, in some cases you are part of that, that gatekeeper society and you're also trying to facilitate equity. Sometimes there's a disconnect between maybe what the university may want because we're thinking of this as like a capitalistic society that says we need money but also you're trying to look out for the best interests of these students and their families. So how do you navigate and reconcile those two different value sets? For me, the, the value set comes in with um, being able to be transparent and honest. And I think um, all of us are, you know, in higher education right now are looking at declines in enrollment, um, looking at situations of, you know, students taking gap years and, if we don't have enrollment numbers, then that throws off our budget. If our budget is off, that means we may have to cut positions, right? Completely understand the trickle-down effect. But the reality of it is, is we have to approach it and for, 
for me, there's a fine line between fit and, you know, accountability, right? Some students are a great fit and they can, they can navigate that space. They just need a little bit of help. But some of our students, um, we're afraid to hold them accountable to teach them things or to do things for them. And I think the accountability piece, um, it don't it doesn't just transfer for the student it transfers to me as a staff member and i transfer that on to the people that supervise me and that i report to i feel that it's a level of accountability um to myself and to the students that i serve that if i'm not giving you the the actual factual information then i'm not doing my job and the one thing that you know i i never ever want to do is play with people's money. And I never want a student to say that you didn't tell me and now I owe all this money and my life is in ruins. So I, I take it as a piece of accountability to say, you know, have that, have that conversation with the student, but they're also using the influence to say, hey, hey leadership, you know, when we look at a student, you know, our students are falling short a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand. Um, our students are getting to senior year and you know need three thousand dollars. That's where I try to use my influence to say, hey, foundation people, what grants can we write for? You know, do we have any donors that are willing to donate? Um, do we have any partners that are willing to provide scholarships? And being able to take the data and take those student stories and share that with the leadership because um as we were kind of talking about earlier once you get to a certain point you're you're kind of far removed from the day-to-day -day student experience and so being in the position that i am and talking with students and talking with families and sharing those stories with leadership because they oftentimes don't have that interaction is the way that i hold myself accountable but then i also hold my students accountable by doing you know you have not because you ask not. If you don't ask the questions, nobody's going to willingly provide you the information. And so I can be accountable to you if you're asking me these things and I can look into it and then I can hold the people above me accountable to say, here's the data that shows our students are falling short. This is the amount of scholarship dollars we need to raise. Who should we be talking to in the community to help make up the gaps? so that our students can not only survive, but they can thrive at our institutions. And then looking at it holistically and selling, selling the brand, when somebody leaves your institution, you want them to be proud of where they left. You want them to have the experience holistically to where they share that and another person may come. You want them to have that experience to where they share it, they had a great experience, and now they wanna give back to the institution because it's given so much to them in their personal development and so the accountability piece i take it as holding you know for me being the middle person i hold the students accountable for asking the right questions and making sure they're doing what they're supposed to do but also taking their stories and sharing that with the people that are far removed to say hey this is what's going on you know our students are working 20 30 40 hours a week sometimes one two jobs balancing kids you know and now with um covid I got a, I'm, I'm my kid's teacher. So now I'm the teacher during the day, but I'm taking class at night. And so how do, how do we help that student? You know, cause our job is not to just admit them, but we want to make sure that we support them through. So how do we help you 
in that situation where you're working 40 hours a week and you're teaching during the day, but then you're trying to come take class at six o'clock at night and you're just tired or you're running out, you know, you're running out of money and you're so close to graduation. How do we help that student? And it's taking those stories in those situations, putting them in a nice format and sharing those with the people that are in the leadership suites and saying, hey, like this is this is where our money is best spent helping these people because these people are going to be our biggest advocates and in reality they're going to be they're going to be the tools that we use to recruit new students because their stories are what people want to hear they don't want to see me in a suit telling them about financial aid and smart borrowing they want to talk to a student that's been through the process they want to talk to a student that said i remember when i talked with dr couch and he he kept it, you know, he kept it 100 with me and said, if I don't get my grades together, I can't get this scholarship. If I don't get this scholarship, I can't stay. You know, it's having, it's having that level of accountability to them, but then also being an advocate for those people is where I kind of find, you know, it's tough at times, but also I feel like it's work that's necessary work because once you get to that C-suite or that leadership piece, you're so high level and you're focusing on you know, the three P's, the people, the power, and politics. At the, at the highest level, that's your job. You're managing people, you're, you know, you're looking at who has power to make decisions and who can change things and who can move the needle forward. And then you're looking at politics. Who do I need to talk to to get the things that I need to make my students be successful? And being in that conversation is, you know, it's a it's a it's a dance it's a song and dance that um it's not it's not ideal but it's so necessary and it's especially necessary um for me and i take it personal as a as an african-american male and doing that for our, our students of color because when you so oftentimes go to the c-suite it's nobody that looks like them oftentimes when you get to the leadership um, there may not even be campus leadership that looks like them. There may not even be a director that looks like them that they see on campus. So for me to be in a position and be visible in that type of position, there's a level of accountability that I owe to them. And then there's a level of accountability that I need to hold our, our leadership to. Definitely appreciative for you in that space. I mean, not only is it, you know, when we're being realistic about it, having people of color in leadership positions in all of our institutions is an asset. I mean, they, they mark that as a checkbox on their diversity list, but actually being able to advocate to ensure equitable processes, to ensure that students are included in the decision-making. I mean, we need more people like that. So I'm glad to hear at least the, the progression where you are and seeing how it's paid off. How do you want people to keep up with you? I mean, beyond this conversation, there might be some families that hear this and say, hey, I, I want somebody to be real with me about higher education. I'm not trying to have everybody knock down your door, but at least, you know, how can people keep up with you? Um, LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn is one that I'm getting more, I've, I'm starting to get more traction from LinkedIn from different projects that I've worked on and project requests. Um, Instagram, my Instagram is um, MikeCouch02. Um, those are the main two. Facebook, um, it's just uh, my name, Mike Couch, uh, and that one is usually a little bit slower, but um, Instagram, 
and LinkedIn are usually my, my two bigger ones now because LinkedIn allows me to share more information and articles around the topics and things that um, students are, you know, looking for. But as always, people can reach me by email. Email is um, mcouch02 at gmail.com. If they have questions, I'm more than willing um, to talk with people just because, you know, I know that a 10-minute conversation with me and having um, having what that that ideal question is because oftentimes we don't know what to ask and working in financial aid or in higher education, you know, we have tons of acronyms and we have departments and we have services. And sometimes you just need somebody to take the time to help you navigate the space and help you ask the right questions to get the answers that you want. So if a 10 minute conversation with me um, helps to save you $10,000 in the long run, it's time well spent for me. Even if it saves you $500 in the long run, it's time well spent for me. You can save a lot of money by switching to Dr. Couch. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> no, bro, it's, it's been great catching up and I'm looking forward to seeing how things continue to progress for you, your family, and also the work that you're doing. Thank you, man. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, excited for um, the work that you're doing. Dr. Bell is coming soon, so we're claiming that right now. Yes, sir. Just ready, just ready to, for the great things. And as always, if you need anything, I'm here as a resource um, and as an advocate. If we need to bounce ideas or just talk or just event and get some things out, um, one of the things I, I strive for in working and being an African American male is just, you know, trying to give back to those that gave back to me. And I, I had a ton of mentors and a ton of African American men that poured into me. And so I always. I always take that um, personally to be able to help and support in any way that I can. Hey, much appreciated and likewise. Special thanks again to brother Dr. Michael Couch for joining us on today's episode. If you would like to follow up with him, his social media and contact information is available in the show notes. Also, be sure to follow the podcast. All of our social media information is included in the podcast notes as well. Whether you like Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, we've got you covered. Wherever you feel most supported and most engaged, we'd like to meet you there. And if it's been a while since you've heard it, I hope you don't think that I forgot it. Equity matters. Take care, folks.